Hi everyone and welcome back to Radiant Others, a Klezmer Music Podcast. My name is Dan Blacksberg and this is the 10th episode of the Radiant Others Podcast. Wow, that is pretty awesome. It's been a real pleasure to be able to have these conversations with my colleagues and peers and people who I've learned from and looked up to and had just great experiences with, whether it's, you know, close friends and collaborators like Michael Winograd or people who I don't get to see very often like Sana Murica or scholars who I really haven't gotten a chance to talk to deeply like Zev or Ethel Rehm. And uh, today is no exception. Today for the 10th episode, I've got BKG the one and only BKG, Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet. Barbara is a scholar. She is a university professor at NYU in and has led the Department of Performance Studies for a long time. She's also the chief curator at the Poland Museum or the Pauline Museum in Warsaw, which she's overseen their core exhibition, which while I haven't seen in person, I have seen the building and I've seen pictures of the exhibition and it, it looks and sounds amazing. So she's just a real powerhouse and she's such a powerhouse that I'm going to do something special today, which is that our conversation is actually going to be broken over two episodes. Today's episode mostly focuses on her childhood and her time in the early days of the Klezmer revival working at YIVO and how she got started working on Yiddish culture and performance studies and all this interesting stuff that really takes her through her academic career at NYU into, I'd say, the early 2000s. And then next week, I'll put up the part of our conversation that really deals with her history from the last 10 to 15 years, detailing her experience curating the Pauline Museum and even having a long conversation about the political situation in Poland today, which, if you're not familiar with, uh, has taken a rightward turn, shall we say, and things have gotten a lot more complicated, especially around the history or talking about history in Poland, especially around Jews. But that's for next week. For this week, we get some really great conversations and some really great stories about Barbara and Yiddish and uh, klezmer music, and anyway, she's just an incredibly smart, well-spoken, and thoughtful person, and this was the first time the two of us had ever really sat down and had a conversation, and it was just an extreme pleasure to be able to do that. So, I hope you enjoy that conversation. Before we get to that conversation, though, I want to thank everybody who's been listening to the podcast, who's been sending me their thoughts, who's been sharing it around. Uh, I really appreciate people's feedback and then the dialogue that's been happening on social media, and it's just really great. I am making this not only for the general public, but especially for our community, the people who really invest themselves in this culture and this music, and it's just been great to be able to provide this for you all and have you listen to it and tell me what you think and keep that conversation moving, because that's really what I want to be doing with all this. So please check out past episodes. Please rate and review it on iTunes. Please share it around as you've been doing and maybe even more. I'm planning on doing a lot of these and the bigger a reach I can get with this podcast, the more often and the more episodes I'll be able to do. So thank you all for your help with making this happen. And it's just great to be part of a community that supports me and is excited about what I'm excited about. It's just so great. So thank you all again. And here's my conversation, part one, uh, with Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet. Well, hello. This is really exciting because we've been, I know you were at Close Canada a couple times and We've been in some of the same spaces, but I don't think we've ever gotten a chance to sit down and actually talk together. No, and this is uh, quite a conversation to be having. Yeah, you know, I think like I started doing these interviews because I was really curious 
about what happened when this thing we call klezmer music was starting to become what it is. I'm in my mid-30s. I learned this music from people, you know, like Frank London or Alan Byrne or Susan and Elaine Watts or... And I learned it from recordings, you know, of like Abe Schwartz Orchestra. But I didn't really get a sense of what it was like. To, I just had a sense of what it was like to come together when people were hanging out late at night at like Klez Camp and saying, wow, things are really exciting. You know, well, this crazy thing that happened to me one time. It was so wild. And then just that feeling of excitement was a lot of what got me to practice the music and do more exploration on my own, eventually start playing with people and all sorts of stuff. And so your name actually has come up a number of times. I think, I guess in relationship to possibly Evo, work at Evo when people were around back in the sort of early days of the revival and that you were sort of pushing people towards different aspects of the music or something like that. So when did the idea of klezmer music come into your life? Well, I was working at Evo and I've been involved with Evo since 1967. That was when I was first introduced to Evo. And then when I moved to New York in 1972, I had the opportunity to work with Lucien Dobroszczycki. Lucien was an historian. He was a survivor of the Lodge Ghetto. He got his PhD in history at the University of Warsaw. And in the course of the anti-Semitic campaign of March 1968, and we are this year commemorating the 50th anniversary of that campaign, he left with his wife and, I believe, his daughter and came to New York not knowing a word of English, having no means of gainful employment. And he was hired by Yivo to catalog their collection of photographs of Polish-Jewish life from their oldest photograph, which is 1864, to 1939. And I was uh, invited to work with him. The idea was that he would catalog the photographs and that he and I together would create a major exhibition of the about approximately 500 original photographs at the Jewish Museum, and we would publish a book to go with the exhibition. And then it turned out that our work was the basis for Image Before My Eyes, the film, right. uh, which uh, Josh Waletsky uh, was involved in, and where the, it's got a beautiful soundtrack, incidentally. It's probably the most beautifully curated, I would say, sound for a film about East European Jews, and that's really to Josh's uh, credit. And while I was there, I recall two moments. One is Janet Elias, who did an interview with Dave Terrace. I think I think I can't remember now the details as to whether we did it together, but she was she was involved in interviewing Dave for sure. I don't know what else she did. And Henry Sapoznik, who had this eureka moment where he, and he t talks about it, uh, and he's written about it as well, where he came to Yivo and somehow all of a sudden the collection of vinyls of uh, this early instrumental music was just a revelation to him. And there was at that time a project that was funded, and I can't remember now the details, but it made it possible to start to, in a sense, explore this music, begin to play it. And at first, the idea was to simply learn to play it the way that these young musicians heard it on these old recordings. And the only, uh, I would say, the only instrumentalist from that tradition at the time that they were turning to was Terrace. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they broadened the the circle, yeah. but it, but initially, Dave Terrace was really the go-to person. And at first, it was simply playing the existing music and learning largely from recordings and to some degree from uh, the last living, I would say, first-generation American, meaning first-generation immigrant uh, performers. I always said, you know, not until these musicians are actually composing and creating new music in the tradition will we really have a viable, let's call it a, either a revival, a renewal, a resurgence, something. Because revival tends to sound like you will bring back something from the dead and you will continue to perform it. But uh, um, a renewal, 
already suggests that something more will happen, and a renaissance mm-hmm. suggests something even bigger. And I don't think anybody at the time could have imagined where this music would go. Yeah. And n- nobody could have imagined it. And that was the 70s. That was in the 70s. It was a very, very exciting time. And I would say, if I had to characterize the early period, I would characterize it as a period that was very focused on research, on trying to find the recordings, uh, the sheet music, the surviving, you know, the performers, the old-time performers, and to immerse themselves in the archive. It was archival. It was, in a sense, performing the archive and trying to penetrate the, the, the archive as deeply and profoundly as possible to somehow become one with that music as it was once played in the old country and as it was continued here uh, in the United States. And it took time to, in a sense, move from the archival to what I would call a more generative moment in the development of the revival. And I don't mean to suggest that the archival wasn't creative. I think that the encounter, the engagement with the archive was a profoundly creative thing to do because it was one thing to, in a sense, replicate what one could hear on those old vinyls. It was another thing to take the scores, like say Hank Isnetsky uh, having all of the the manuscript, uh, the scores basically, uh, from the Philadelphia uh, Klezmers. So, but I do think that the engagement with the archive was an act of historical imagination and not simply a kind of mechanical replication of what they were hearing. And what I thought was uh, very important in the early Klez camps is they were never only about performing the music as if it were repertoire that was independent of an entire cultural world. And so what the Klez camps did, and I was there from the very first Klez camp that Henry organized from the very, very first one with my parents. Mm. And we went for years and years uh, to them. They, uh, they, what they did is they offered uh, classes in Yiddish language, song, the Yiddish song, of course, with Adrian uh, Cooper Gordon. And they offered uh, lectures in culture, folklore, history. Uh, my task was to, to do those lectures, and some of them I did with my father, uh, interviewing also these uh, sessions where we interviewed uh, basically Jews had been born and raised in the old country and come here and remembered. The idea that this music was part of a wider culture and it was a way into that wider culture made the music gave gave the music a much richer, deeper, wider, and very appropriate cultural context. And it, it, what it did is it would be very easy to abstract the music and just treat it as music. But this was a way of treating it as Yiddishkeit and of trying to build a kind of sensibility, a Yiddishkeit sensibility for the performing of the music. And, and that, so it's not just about technique and repertoire and, um, you know, it's not just world music and you can pick anything up from anywhere. On the one hand, I would say that the folk song revival was a kind of predecessor to it. Then the world music, which is really quite another story, Mm -hmm. was also uh, an impetus because what it did was it widened the receptivity um, of music, I would say, producers, performers, and listeners. It widened their receptivity to a much broader range of sound and to a much broader range of music. And that... Um, on the one hand, what that did was to give to this music a kind of world significance, but at the same time, what was great about Klez Camp, what, what, what is great about Klez Canada, what is great about Yiddish New York, and many other of these, I would say, music-centered Yiddish events, is that they deepen the Yiddishkeit component that so that the music is never completely severed from its connection to this wider world of of uh, Yiddish culture or East European Jewish culture. So the stage stages I would say would go from archival to generative to flat out creative <laughs> is how I would how, you know how how I would draw the trajectory. 
And the Flat Out Creative has taken the music in so many interesting directions and has brought together uh, musicians from so many different musical backgrounds, Jewish, not Jewish, German, Polish, American, Latin American, Israeli. And that, I, I think, is really quite extraordinary because... What is it, 50 years? No, let's see, 70s, 80s, 90s, 10s. It's almost 50 years. Yeah. You yeah. know, we must be getting old. <laughs> well, not you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always getting older. So that's really fascinating the way you put all that because it really echoes a lot of my experience. Um, I can remember when I realized that the things that people were teaching at Klez Camp of this is how you interpret Jewish music or this is how you play this melody wasn't necessarily exactly the way that I heard it on an old recording. And I realized how generative, like you said, the uh, creative process of reimagining this music in real life as opposed to just in these snapshots that we had was and how much we were potentially changing what had already, what had already existed in order to create a traditional Klezmer style, in quotes, so to speak, but also my sense of the pathway of this music and all that stuff and the connection to the Yiddish culture and really also how everybody comes together and plays it from all sorts of different genres. I mean, I came to this music probably because it was something that was sort of culturally home, felt like culturally home to me, but then also looked outward and the musicians who were playing it came from everywhere, like you said. So I would love to unpack a little bit some of the stuff that you said about where you were in this process. Cause so you were at Evo in the sixties and I know that you were in the seventies and the seventies and you, well, actually from the sixties onwards, right. But it was during the seventies that it was this, this very, very sort of origin, the original moment, if you will, of the birth of interest in this music. Right. Yeah. So just for you yourself, was that particular set of music, this instrumental music, something that you had been familiar with growing up? I know you grew up with some Yiddish or a lot of Yiddish at home, right? Well, basically, I, I grew up in a Jewish immigrant neighborhood in Toronto. I was born in 1942, so I was born during the war. And I have very vivid recollections of the immediate post-war period mm. of during the 1940s, early 50s, the arrival of survivors. They weren't called survivors at that time. They were called DPs, which yeah. was not a very nice term, actually. It, right. was, a, it was really a slur honestly. I mean, on the one hand, it's a neutral term. They were displaced persons, but to be called a DP was not uh, nothing like being called a survivor. Sure. And that was a process. It was a Yiddish-speaking environment. It was very rich in terms of culture and was very European. Mm -hmm. And what I remember, of course, is wedding music. Yeah. That, that's what I remember, live wedding music. Uh, whether and also at bar mitzvahs. So if there would be um, a party after a bar mitzvah, there would be a um, you know fest dinner and dancing after a wedding. That was the music that was played. So I never thought of it as klezmer music. I just thought of it as Jewish music, wedding music, uh, uh, a party music. When I was in New York, uh, and and one of the reasons I came to New York in 1972 was that I had written a grant application to the NEA to document the Yiddish folk song. I got, we got the grant, and it was done through the Max Weinrach Center uh, for Advanced Jewish Research and the, at the EVO. And for, it, was, it was technically from 72 to 74, but it actually continued a bit beyond that. And so my project was specifically on the Yiddish folk song, and the idea was to identify uh, traditional singers because I had already been recording in the 1960s um, Marian Nirenberg, who was a cousin. And I had discovered quite by accident that she was a traditional Yiddish singer with an incredible, beautiful, beautiful uh, traditional voice and style and repertoire. I was stunned. What happened was that we, my mother's sister had made a dinner, and at the dinner... Mariam was there, my mother, my mother's sister. My mother used to love to hear Mariam sing when they were kids in Breslitovsk in Europe. Wow. And, um, and Sylvia, my mother's older sister, was crazy about Mariam's songs. And so at this dinner, Sylvia said to Mariam, you know, like sing or something, uh, sing. And Mariam started to sing. 
I sat there and almost fell off my chair. Here was a bona fide, like totally 100% traditional singer. And her style was, because it's, it's from, she's from Palesia, so it has this kind of slightly Belarusian, you know, it's the borderlands. Anyway, I was stunned. So I started to record her repertoire, and then I realized she's not the only one. There are other traditional singers out there, and nobody's recording the entire repertoire. And I wanted to record everything. I don't care what the language was. It could be Yiddish, Polish, German, English, Hebrew, macaronic songs, a mixed language. But I wanted the whole repertoire. And I also wanted to document the repertoire in a way that was considered state-of-the-art at the time, which meant that not only the songs, but how they learned them, when they sang them, who they learned them from, the various contexts for singing, how they understood them, what they felt about them. And I developed a whole questionnaire so that these interviews that went with the songs were as important in many ways as the songs themselves. And so I, for example, recorded as far as I could, as complete as I could, the repertoire of Lifsha Vidman, who was Itzik Gottesman's uh, grandmother, incredible, incredible woman, marvelous, marvelous repertoire, and a completely different style. Mm. Very soft and very kind of, um, it's sort of dreamy, actually, in her, uh, it's hard to hard to describe because uh, Mariam's style was more, I would say, kind of bright and uh, more like you would associate with, uh, I would say, like Balkan or... Belarusian, Ukrainian sort of uh, style. In any event, I was here, and my in in that in, in that period, not only was I working with with Lucian, especially after seventy four, but my prime uh, project was the Yiddish folk song project, and it was in the context of documenting Yiddish folk song that it was very easy to extend out to the instrumental tradition. Now, who were the instrumentalists that should also uh, be interviewed, documented, recorded, etc.? So it was a very logical. And um, I believe that the first time ever that a traditional Yiddish singer was ever presented to the public was when Marty Koenig and uh, Ethel Rehm through their Balkan Folk Arts Center, if I'm not mistaken, that's the name of it. I think so. Um, They were the ones that organized a concert at Columbia University, and we brought Mariam from Toronto to New York to perform. And I think it was the first time ever. In other words, Ruth Rubin performed, Mm-hmm. But she was a she basically performed songs that, in large measure, she learned from the singers that she recorded. Mm-hmm. So she was this kind of hybrid person who sang in a traditional style, but sang a repertoire not the, a repertoire that she had learned in a sense in um in the old country in what I call in quotation marks natural settings. Yeah, but that but but much of her repertoire had really been acquired through her field work recording traditional singers, and she she issued on Folkways a wonderful thirty three RPM, yeah. uh, more than one of of those songs, and in some of the, in some cases uh, sings them herself. But Mariam Nirenberg, that was a first, and we won the best best recording of the year. Uh, from the Library of Congress. Oh, cool! For that recording, came out first on vinyl, then it was brought out on on uh, CD, and now you can actually order the tracks uh, through iTunes. Oh, that's great! So, in terms of uh, my own my childhood, what's interesting is that uh, I really grew up with the folk song revival. First of all, I was trained in classical piano. That was the idea. Was my mother had always had aspirations that she would learn to play the piano. Of course given that she came here to Canada when she was 14 and she never finished high school and she used to do sewing piecework for her father, who was a tailor, there was like no way that she would ever learn the piano. So all three daughters had to study the piano. So I studied <laughs> classical piano, of period. Course, yeah. However, growing up in, a, in an immigrant neighborhood, my piano lessons actually started at a settlement house. And the teacher there eventually taught privately at her home, and she became my teacher. However, that settlement house 
ran summer camps for these immigrant children, of which I was one. It was They were called Red Feather Camps. And they were a bit like the New York Times does those summer things for underprivileged kids. Okay. So it was a little bit like that. Yeah. And one of the summer camps was a two-week summer camp in northern Ontario, which was a music camp. And I went to that music camp. Now, that music camp was an absolute revelation apart from the fact that was the first time i ever went got into a kayak or went on a hike <laughs> or or experienced nature you know and i saw lakes and it was camp boulderwood it was called and saw i mean it was what can i say i mean i just had never encountered anything like it yeah. so it was my two week experience but what was so brilliant about it as a music camp is it wasn't about classical music it was run by Barbara Casbeggs, and we were introduced to the English and Scottish, uh, I would say, traditional folk song, mm. to the ballads. Yeah. And so the repertoire, the, the uh, if you will, the folk repertoire, that my first folk repertoire, I would say, were like, uh, you know, Barbara Allen and all those English and Scottish folk ballads. It's, uh, when I think about it now today, uh, and I think about the song sheets that we had and that we sang after lunch or after, you know, whatever meal... That was the introduction, and I think that prepared me really for the folk song revival, both as a, like, Pete Seeger, The Weavers, um, and, the you know, that whole uh, Gene Ritchie and all of those wonderful performers, but also to the Jewish component of it, which my mother's personal favorite was Theodore Bikel. Of course. So we had the songbook, and I had to play the piano, and everybody uh -huh. sang, and That's we had great. all of his LPs, and uh, and we all learned and could sing all of his songs. So it was that I would say it, it would really be much more about song than about instrumental music. That was the folk song revival was first and foremost about song, right? And uh, the instrumental element really came much later. understanding of it the yiddish folk song tradition and the yiddish side of you know yiddish kite was actually in a much was certainly much more organized and maybe in a much healthier place than the instrumental music was in terms of continuity absolutely well first of all you you uh for instrumental music you had to know how to play the instrument <laughs> right let's start there and song, in that way, was a much more democratic musical form. Sure, good point. Uh, basically, everybody, everybody and anybody who wanted to sing, more or less, could sing, and in large measure, did sing, in one way or another, whether it was in shul or it was while working, because there was a lot of singing uh, that you know that pe while people were working. Mm -hmm. So, but if I might just add, there was instrumental music in my home. It was my father had learned to play the violin in the old country, in Poland, in Opatów. And he had violin lessons, and he was taught by a klezmer. Oh. But he, uh, in the town. The, the klezmer gave lessons. Sure. But he, but he was taught classical. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because they wouldn't teach, they wouldn't teach klezmer. Right. Presumably, you would start to play in some kind, you know, as a kid, or somehow, I don't know, even know how klezmer musicians learned how to play. Yeah. But classical was taught. So in Canada... He loved Canadian country music. And the, the most popular was Don Messer and his Islanders from the Maritimes. Mm -hmm. And we had his music, uh, music books. 
And on Sunday morning, my father loved nothing better than to play from the Don Messer music books. I had to play the accompaniment, which was really boring on the piano. <laughs> and he would play, you know. So in a way, it was the classical music, you know, country, Canadian country music and classical music were not so far apart. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I have a vague memory of your father from the first couple of years at Close Canada, yeah. I think, when, yeah. you know, the way people come to this music and then the instrumental music can kind of take over your whole life. Yes, indeed. And I think also what I, I think I love so about the, the uh, instrumental music is that because it's collaborative, it's social, mm-hmm. where singing can be, I mean, you can sing to yourself, presumably, but singing is more when when I think of, when I think about Mariam for example or I think about Lifsha they sang at home they sang with their friends they sang in the kitchen they sang on social occasions they didn't generally quote perform mm-hmm. whereas instrumentalists perform do you think that's a uh, function of gender also and sort of gendered roles of like instrumental, at least in the old days you know it's a good point because the musicians were all men in yeah. the old country and women definitely Men, we have men had wonderful repertoires too, sure. and and men were singing also, but definitely this uh, uh, for women song was was absolutely their terrain. It d- didn't mean that men didn't sing, but certainly for women it was a big deal. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. It, it's, I mean, it's kind of in a lot of ways. I think in some communities that's still how it works. So maybe I don't know. Now, how did you find your way? Because it sounded like. You could have easily gone into a, I don't know, performing music, but music was your focus. So when did the idea of like academic study or thinking about these things in an academic way start to appeal to you, or how did you find yourself in there? Uh, you know, I had a musical background, and I studied ethnomusicology at university, but ethnomusicology was one of a set of topics within anthropology, folklore, that interested me. In other words, I was interested in culture. Mm-hmm. I was interested in East European Jewish culture. I was interested in Yiddish culture. And for me, that meant spoken word, music, material culture. It meant festival, ritual. It meant culture, 360 degrees culture. And because I had musical background, ethnomusicology was uh, a natural for me. And I had an opportunity when I was at the University of California, Berkeley, because I was there between 65 and 67. And it was absolutely marvelous. I was able to take ethnomusicology courses, courses in material culture. I did two semesters on the history of textiles. I mean, where? Never at the University of Toronto, which is where I started out, would I have ever been able to do such a range. But within that, my focus was on East European and Yiddish culture. And the way it happened was that when I entered the graduate program in folklore at the at Indiana University, in the very first semester, there was a fieldwork course, and it was taught by Jerry Mintz, by Jerome Mintz. Now, he had done his dissertation among Hasidim in Brooklyn and wrote uh, his dissertation and published a book called Legends of the Hasidim, specifically on contemporary legends in the Hasidic community in Brooklyn. And in the course of that fieldwork methods uh, course, he somehow or other he discovered that I knew Yiddish. And he said to me, well, why don't you do something, you know, based on your knowledge of Yiddish? And so... Th- and th- during Thanksgiving of the first semester, that would have been 1967, I went home for Thanksgiving to Toronto, and I was also taking a course in Russian folklore at the time, using a Soviet-era Russian folklore textbook, because there wasn't anything else, by, yeah. by Sokolov, called Russian Folklore. Of course. And I was sitting at, the, <laughs> sitting at the kitchen table, it was a Sunday morning, my father's reading the newspaper, my mother's in the kitchen doing the dishes. And I coming to the and you know I had a reading assignment. I had to read this book, so I come to the chapter on death, and I'm reading, and I oh my god! And I start to read out loud. It says here that when the person dies, they lay the body out with the feet facing the door, so that the person won't, so the dead person won't know, won't come back. So the feet are feet are facing the door, and they put a glass of water and a little napkin on the windowsill and open the door, so when the soul leaves. It'll wash itself, dry itself, and exit through the window. So my father says, well, we, you know, we did that, I mean, more or less. I said, what? And we started to have a conversation. And that was the moment, that was the precise moment when I realized that there was an untapped wealth 
of memory of people who had grown up in the old country, a wealth of, I would say, Yiddish culture uh, having to do with all aspects of life in, in, in this case, in Poland, because that's mainly in the Toronto Jewish community, uh, mainly the, the, that community is from my father's region, which is south-central Poland. Mm-hmm. So I began interviewing. I, began in, I started with my family. I, I began interviewing my mother, who had incredible repertoire of parables and uh, proverbs that she had learned from her mother, and with my father, who had the most prodigious memory about everything. And then I kind of you know, branched out from, to other family members and then to the wider Toronto Jewish community. And then out when I came to New York... I branched out, obviously, to many people here. And I think it was the, that very moment that had me shift from, um, I, I could have easily worked on African folklore. Right. It would have been a piece of cake because Africa was interesting and I was studying with a specialist in African folklore. But I think it was that moment that somehow something clicked. And the other thing that I think really was the, it was a series of things that, there was that moment where you said, where Jerry said, do something with Yiddish. And then I contacted another folklorist at the Canadian National Museum at the time. They had a center for folk culture. And there was a Ukrainian folklorist there who was commissioning surveys of immigrant folklore in Canada. And I contacted him and said, listen, would you like a, a survey of Jewish immigrants in Toronto? A Yiddish, folk, a Yiddish folklore survey? He said, sure. So then I thought, Hmm. I called up Michal Herzog. Michal Herzog was finishing a dissertation on the Yiddish dialect of northeastern Poland at Columbia University. He had been studying with Uriel Weinreich. And he had been the director of a summer camp that I went to uh, called uh, Camp Kfutza. It was from Habonim. It was a labor Zionist summer camp. And as a labor Zionist summer camp, it was very Yiddish oriented. Mm. And he was the director. And so I called him up and I said, Michal, he was in New York. I said, guess what? I'm going to do this Yiddish folklore survey for the Canadian National Museum. He said, I'm sending you a plane ticket to come to New York in two weeks. And he did. Wow. So I came to New York and he said, I have to introduce you to Yivo. And he brought me to Yivo and he introduced me to Hanna Blotek, Hanna Frischdorf, to uh, Lucy Davidovich, to all the these all these you know obviously born in born in 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 in, the, in Poland, uh, survivors of the Holocaust. He introduced me to these people. Uh, he took me down to the uh, to Bina Weinreich, who was born here. Took me down to the basement of the Yivo, into the vault, to show me the Shalom Aleichem manuscript and the recordings, and I was blown away. And then he took me, and I had an audience with Max Weinreich before he died and his wife, uh, Regina. And that, by that time, Vine, uh, Max was blind, but it was in his study with his glass lined bookcases, and he, shortly thereafter, he passed away. And um, basically, and I met Mordechai Schechter, and it was a kind of a, I would say, a kind of a debut, not a debut, what would you call it? coming out. I don't know what to, I don't know what to call it. I don't have the right words for it. What it was was it was it was a defining moment because I understood at that moment that there was an entire world, a universe of Yiddish scholarship that had this deep history in the old country and that was being carried on in America and that was desperate for a new generation to carry it forward. Mm. And in 1967, in 1967, there weren't a lot of signs of there being a new generation. So when somebody comes along, and also the uh, Yiddish culture, Yiddish language, Yiddish folklore was not well established in the American university. The most important development had been the creating of the Atran Share in Yiddish language and culture at Columbia University, which had been held by Uriel Weinreich and then was held by Michal Herzog. But in terms, if you looked around the country, there, you know, basically that was it. That meant that there wasn't a kind of a deep bench of people with PhDs who were working on Yiddish culture. You, you had people who were deeply knowledgeable, 
but you didn't, it just wasn't mature. It hadn't matured. And so this was the impetus also for creating the Max Weinrach Center for Advanced Jewish Studies mm. at, at Evo. It was the impetus to create a consortium of universities and then to convene them at Evo and then to offer courses in Yiddish, basically Yiddish culture, history, literature, and to offer in the Uriel Weinrach summer program the language courses and to offer the Yiddish linguistics through Columbia. So there was an attempt here to really build something. So I was one of the first of a American, well, North American-born generation, and there was great, I mean, I felt an enormous, enormous uh, responsibility. Mm. And I could see that people were really looking towards towards me and the generation that I could represent uh, for the, for the future. And so I began teaching at a very early stage and among my um, among the things that I'm most proud of uh, were the opportunities to have as my students Jack Kugelmas, Jonathan Boyarin, Itzik Gottesman, Shifra Epstein, Chava Weisler, I don't know, I could name, you know, um, many, many others. So it was really a kind of a, a set of circumstances, uh, a professor who kind of twigged that I knew Yiddish, opportunity to do this Yiddish culture survey, a summer camp director that I had stayed in touch with, who who saw, who seized this moment, yeah. basically, and connected me to YIVO, then YIVO encouraging and supporting Everything that I, I wanted to do, Wolf Yunin from the day from the from the Yiddish Forward, mm. who ran as the Sprachwinkel. There was the Sprachwinkel that that he would basically every week he'd publish Yiddish folklore from the readers that would send him um, all of you know he would basically do he did crowdsourcing yeah you know right. from the Yiddish Forward and his readers would send him in all of their their folklore and he would publish it. It was also the Perl uh, the the pearls of Yiddish folk song that Yoslan Chanam Lotek would publish. So I remember that Wolf Yunin, he took me under his wing. He got me my Yiddish typewriter. He would read, he <laughs> would read, the, he'd read the obituaries. And when he would see that a great Yiddish writer had died or a journalist or an editor, he would immediately make an appointment with the widow and he would take me there. And it's how I, I created my Yiddish library. I would buy the books from the library of the deceased. Wow. So he was incredible. He was so unbelievably supportive. So I was really supported and I was encouraged to, I would say, I would say fulfill the dreams right. of this older generation that there should be a younger generation who would take charge and develop the field and carry on. And it was, a, it was a, an enormous, it was an enormous opportunity and an enormous responsibility. It also reminds me of something I talked to Mark Slobin over the summer, last summer, and he mentioned the idea in anthropology or something of really covering oneself, uh, taking one's own culture as a source of study or as like a, a life's work, and that that was actually a pretty new thing at the time also. Yes, I think the idea of autoethnography, in a sense, for, sure. for want of a better term, uh, was relatively new, although... Uh, there was also a very positive move to say that those whose culture is being studied should be empowered also to study it. Yes. Because there was also some anxiety about st uh, studying, quote, the other and the f kind of a power relationship that I would say ethnography, anthropology, folklore were really criticizing. 
and uh, so that there were there were new developments in ethnography and the way that it was being done, and the idea that one would study one's own community was coming coming into its own. It's interesting that Ashkenazi Jews would be, in a way, so poised to take advantage of that moment, and the way that we as a culture have sort of always straddled the other otherness and whatever the opposite of that is, you know, inside insideness and the way that it seems that in different periods in Europe, at least, we were in with the ruling class or out with the rule, you know, we were persecuted in that kind of pendulum put maybe put us in a really as a culture in a really good or put our culture in a really good place to sort of be at the intersection of being in the academy, the people who do the studying, and then to take that on as studying ourselves. I mean, uh, but, but also, I think this is interesting, and that is a great strength of ethnomusicology, which was the idea that a very, uh, a very important tool in the study of music was what you could learn by performing it. And so learning to perform the music you were studying, not being your music. I mean, ethnomusicology basically, ethnomusicologists basically were studying other people's music. But the idea that becoming bi-musical, that, that learning to perform the music was a, a, a way of coming to know and understand the music, and therefore it was an extraordinarily valuable research tool, in a sense was like becoming bilingual, b- being able to speak the language of the culture that you're studying. And so music was in a, music was in a similar, the idea to be bi-musical, bilingual, was was very important. Now, to do that within your own culture is also very interesting because, and, and I think for for music especially, you don't see it so much. Maybe for maybe maybe it's a question of the performing arts, because I I think it's very specific. I think it's very specific to music and dance. Mm. Are you saying what's specific is the kind of information that can be gained from performing? Exactly. It? Yeah, so that's actually a really great transition into uh, the talking about performance studies, which is something else that was a big part of your has been a big part of your career and your and your work. And what I was thinking about when you were talking about your experiences and meeting all these people and discovering where your work was going to be and how that related to your own life and your own community. What's really cool about that is that you were able to use that as a way to look outward as well as inward, and so. Where did where was that coming from, and the idea of like performance studies, and yeah. So how what in what things did you find in your own study of your own community and stuff that helped you look outward and vice versa and all that kind of stuff. So basically, I got my PhD in folklore, and during the period when I was studying for my PhD, there was a major shift in the field, and there was a shift away from text and away from the written page to performance. So what does that mean? It means that the older model was to study what they call sort of tale types and motifs and distribution and sort of the history of these various forms and to study them as discrete entities, tales, songs, proverbs. There was a shift from that approach to studying, if you will, texts in context, songs in context, proverbs in context, meaning that you needed to document the singer, the circumstances, um, when these songs would normally be sung, when these tales would normally be be told, and if you recorded them in a so-called natural context or in a so-called induced natural context, then you could record the whole thing. Well, then there was a shift from the idea of context to the idea that it's not text in context. The whole thing is a performance. So what you're really studying are performances because everything you're studying didn't start out as something written on a page. And it might end up that way, but that ultimately what you're studying is something which is being said, spoken, danced, sung, performed. It's a performance. And so the, a performance approach really became the most 
exciting development in the field, and it was happening during the period when I was studying. So I uh, was was basically teaching folklore at University of Texas. I was teaching in the Department of Folklore and Folklife at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and I was very engaged, living in New York, and very engaged in organizing with my colleagues a whole set of conferences on folklore in New York. And in the course of doing that, I met Richard Schechner at uh, New York University, and he was he was running a, a seminar called Performance Theory. And I had a look. There were some notices around, you know, basically recruiting students for this course. And I, I got to see it's like Barbara Meyerhoff, Irving Goffman, and several uh, several other people. I thought, wow, that just sounds like everything that I read and do and know and love. Who is this guy? What is this course? Mm. So I met him. And in the course of us getting to know each other, one day I get a call from him, and he says, would you like to chair our department at NYU? And oh. I, sa- I said, no, I'm not interested in chairing a department, and I'm a very happy University of Pennsylvania, and, uh, and your department's a department of drama. I, I, you know, why would I, why would I want to chair a department, graduate department of drama? Yeah. Well, he said, well, how about lunch? And I said, sure. So <laughs> we went to the Grand Ticino. It's no longer there. It was in the village. Oh, such, such a classic place. Oh, I bet. Really classic. You know, go down a couple of stairs inside. It's like dark green, sconces on the walls, tables of white tablecloths, old uh, waiters, very nice classic Italian food. Anyway, so he was there <laughs> and then three of his colleagues, and they start to really tell me what they want to do. And what they want to do is to change the name of the department. They want to call it the Department of Performance Studies. Basically, what was happening is that they were involved in the off-off-Broadway experimental and avant-garde theater scene. So they were actually making performances that had nothing to do with what they were teaching. They were teaching, the, you know, the history of drama from Aeschylus to Ibsen. Right. Uh, but they were making performances that were avant-garde, experimental, environmental, you name it. And Richard, meanwhile, had been to India, and he was interested in, uh, and he'd been to Japan, and he was interested in Ramlila, and in No, and Kabuki, and you name it. So they said, look, we want to make a Department of Performance Studies, and our Department of Performance Studies will not be a Department of European Drama. Mm. It will be, a, it, we will study performance, and, and we will study all kinds of performance, and all over the world. So not just Europe, and not just theater, and not just drama. We will study ritual, political rallies, circus, popular entertainments, world's fairs. We will study dance, uh, theater. Uh, We'll study stage design and technology. We'll study the history of the avant-garde. We'll create a field where anything that is a performance or that can be studied as a performance will be within our portfolio. Wow. And so I thought, wow, that sounds interesting, but like, why me? They said, because we don't want somebody coming from theater. Basically, they were worried if somebody came from theater, they would never fully escape from the theater focus. So, and, and they knew that my approach was performance in everyday life, that I studied basically, if you will, what I call the aesthetics of everyday life. I studied talking, mm-hmm. conversation, storytelling, singing. I studied um, what, uh, the artfulness of everyday life. And I studied it from, a, from, a, from the perspective of doing, from the perspective of, in a sense, performing. Right. So they, they understood that. So they hired me. I wow. mean, I, first of all, once I got it, I said, okay. I said, all right. But then, after I had signed the contract, I thought to myself, you know, they've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> and they, it'll take them about two years to figure it out. It'll be too late. But I'm sure they have made, they don't know, they made a terrible mistake. So the very first course that I taught was the aesthetics of everyday life. I thought it would never make it through the curriculum committee because it was so out of the box right. as a course. And I took my students to the Purim place at Bobov, you know, in Borough Park. I took them to the Stations of the Cross on the Lower East Side, to the dragon parades in, uh, in Chinatown for the Chinese New Year, to, uh, you know, sukkahs in Williamsburg. Don't ask. The, we did field trips 
all kinds of things. The first time I taught this course, I thought to myself, no one's going to sign up. And this will be the moment they realize the terrible mistake that they made. Uh-huh. Well, I had like over 40 students. Amazing. And who were they? Dancers, choreographers, actors, theater people. I said, what are you doing in this course? It's got nothing to do with choreography or anything like what you do. They said, because we've had enough theater and we've had enough choreography. You know all that stuff. And also, these are, these are artists who were actually creating performances out of everyday movements and in everyday settings. Yeah. It was unbelievable, the convergence. And then I realized, actually, maybe they did actually, maybe they did hire the right person. <laughs> Sounds like it. When was this? This is a set from, this was from 19, the spring of 81. So that is, to me, a really radical thing. To happen in an academic setting. It is. It is. It was. It was in the Tisch School of the Arts. That was the time NYU. when those kinds of things were happening. It was. It was. It was a fantastic, a fantastic scene. And the off-off Broadway scene was Mabu Mines and Richard Foreman and, gosh, there was a whole and Richard Schechner had his group and, it was really the performance group, the Worcester group. It was really an extraordinary time. And also, this is what's so interesting to me, is how you took your experience in not only Yiddish Yiddish folklore or Yiddishkeit or Yiddish culture, but it was also your own personal culture, and were able to sort of spin out into this extremely broad, I mean, you know, the aesthetics of everyday life, that's about as broad (laughs) as humanly possible, right? It is. It's just such an interesting path for me to see. How how did that happen? Did that happen naturally, or are you? Well, yeah, I think like this. First of all, I would say that I am a radically multidisciplinary person. Gotcha. You know, so I'm very promiscuous in my interests, <laughs> and have always been. My interests are very very broad, and I'm married to an artist, to a mod, to a contemporary artist. I I would say, I think from as early as I can remember, I had kind of a broad interest in other cultures, in a variety of artistic forms, in, I like making things, doing things, I ran arts and crafts programs, I know how to weave and did ceramics and metalwork and leather and uh, cooking and so I, I just, I don't know, it's, um, in a way, the tough part was to, in a sense, focus. Mm. The tough part was to say, okay, my specialty is going to be East European Jewish culture. It's going to be Yiddish culture. That's going to be my specialty. Right. Okay, I'm going to go down the path of folklore, ethnography, sociolinguistics, ethnomusicology. I want to go down that path. Okay, I'm going to take this performance approach to everyday life. And I'm going to, although I have a specialty, which will be this Jewish specialty, of course, um, it'll be broader. And when it was broader, it was largely urban, largely New York City. Yeah. Basically, because I needed to have a place. I needed to be somewhere where I could actually explore and teach from living situations. Sure. And that was, that was the key. It just, it just kind of seemed very natural. It, was, it just kind of evolved. That's great. What were uh, some things that you encountered in, you know, once you, had, you started in Yiddish culture, you broadened out through the city of New York to all the things the city has to offer, which is seems like most cultures. And uh, what were some things that maybe like bounced back that changed the way you looked at Yiddish culture or your own culture? Uh, let me think. Well, I think probably the single biggest element was discovering that there were scholars long before me who had been studying this culture, and I had no idea. Mm. And that's a discovery that is shared. I mean, Mark Slobin has done wonderful work on Berogovsky, and Zev Feldman has done wonderful work. And I think it was this discovery of earlier generations working in Warsaw, working in Vilna, who had come before me and whose lives were cut short by the Holocaust, mm-hmm. that I maybe started out as the child of Jewish immigrants from Poland, but then I felt like I was the successor to generations of scholars in Yiddish culture and folklore and music. And so it gave me a, another genealogy. I had one genealogy as a child of Polish Jews 
and another genealogy as a new generation of scholars who were dedicated to this area of research. And that was, and learning and discovering who they were and discovering the, the scholarship that they had done and the way that they had worked and the settings and the contexts in which they had done their research, that was really, that gave me a completely different sense of who I was and what my mission was. The well, that was part one of my conversation with Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet, otherwise known as BKG. And there's a lot more to come in part two, so stay tuned for next week. I'll just say that I had a really great time talking to Barbara when I was doing this conversation with her, and going over it again while I was editing it, just so many moments of excitement and the way that that excitement of her experience just came through really struck me as why I'm doing this. And so it was just a pleasure to talk to her and I can't wait to share the rest of our conversation with you. So stay tuned for next Friday and we'll have part two with BKG coming at you. In the meantime, I hope everybody's doing well and good Shabbos.